again, listeners, and welcome along to another episode of the Glow West podcast, where we chat about sex, sexuality, and the body. As always, I'm your host, Dr. Caroline West, and I'm always delighted to be part of the Tortoise Shack Network, where you can find tons of content on politics, culture, society, and of course, my favourite topic of sex. And if you like what we do, please do consider supporting us at patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack to help keep the mics up and running. Or if you like, please pop over to Apple and Spotify and rate and review. That helps push the podcast out to new people who need all this gorgeous information in their lives. If you want to get in touch, the Instagram and Twitter is at Glow West Podcast. So today we are talking about something that, again, when it comes to like things to do with a womb and a vagina and a vulva, it's always shrouded in silence and taboo and misunderstandings. And we are not tolerating that. We are shining a soft light on the topic of vaginismus today. And, you know, I think way more people experience this than we know because people just don't come forward and they don't know and they're left there suffering in silence and we are not having that we are changing that so I have the perfect guest today to talk to me about this Dr. Maria McAvoy was enrolled in Dublin City University's part-time PhD programme from 2014 to 2021. Under the supervision of Dr. Rosalind McIlvaney and Dr. Rita Glover in the Department of Nursing, Psychotherapy and Community Health. Her area of research interest is the experience of vaginismus for Irish women and couples. This study is the first non-study of vaginismus in Ireland for almost 40 years and was the first study to build a theoretical model of vaginismus within an Irish context from the perspective of couples and healthcare providers. Marie completed her PhD in 2021 and graduated in March 2020, thanks COVID for the delay, and continues to advocate for greater awareness of vaginismus and for more sensitive and ethical approaches to treatment. So you can find her at vaginismusresearchireland.com and her Twitter feed is Irish Vaginismus and it provides information about vaginismus and details of support services for women and couples. So Maria, Dr. Maria, newly into Dr. Maria. How are you today? Oh, thank you, Dr. West. <laughs> it's like doctor, 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 doctor. Oh, are you getting used to it yet? Is it a new new title for you? I'm just about. Just yeah. about. It is lovely. But, you know, the reason I did the, the PhD was, you know, kind of driven out of frustration more than anything else, because, you know, it's a strange statistic that Ireland historically has had the highest rates of vaginismus ever recorded in Europe. Um, and there's been no studies, as you said, done on it for 40 years. So there was a study done in 1979 and 1986 by um, psychiatrists and psychosexual clinics in Dublin. Um, and at the time they registered, there was five in every thousand marriages affected. But this is people, as you said, that came forward for help. Mm. And they speculated there was a lot more people in the general population, and especially in rural areas, they wouldn't have been able to travel to Dublin, you know, at the time um, to be assessed. Um, and so, you know, they recorded things like, you know, the ultra conservative kind of Catholic ethos we had in Ireland at the time, uh, the fact that we didn't talk about sex, that it was a taboo subject, that there was no sex education, you know, all of those things created a perfect storm whereby couples really didn't know what sex was until their wedding night. And then maybe, you know, it, it was quite yeah, an yeah. astonishment for them and they didn't know what to do and they had to go for help. Um, but nothing was known um, about modern day Ireland with regard to vaginismus, which was why I wanted to do the study to look at what the factors were today that actually contributed towards it. That's like, there's so much in that. Like you've only spoken there for like, what, a minute? And it's like, there's enough in that for like five podcasts. Like this, like you just think of those people suffering and just not even being able to name it or being told like in Irish society, being called a barren woman was like the worst thing you could be. Like yeah. you're like shunned. 
Yeah. And the thing is, like worldwide, you know, if you look at, you know, where and we'll get into this as well, you know, that obviously religion does play a big role, but there are other factors as well. But if you take, say, you know, very orthodox Muslim countries like Iran and Turkey, a lot of studies have come from those countries. And again, women are brought to the psychosexual clinics for vaginismus because they can't conceive. And that is, you know, the worst thing and um, that they can't actually have children, but it's nothing to do with sexual well-being, se sexual satisfaction. And um, so women with, you know, um, you know, anorgasmia or, you know, other kinds of disorders wouldn't necessarily be brought to psychosexual clinics mm. in those countries. It's been documented by the clinicians, but vaginismus tends to be because it prevents conception. Okay, so nothing really about the person, just more about the vessel that they can exactly. potentially yeah. be. So, well, that's frustrating. So uh, what exactly is vaginismus, which I used to call vaginismus. No, I no, I got that mixed up again. Vaginismus, non-vaginismus, even though that sounds nicer. But um, yeah, vaginismus, what is that? Let's put the nice in vaginismus. <laughs> yeah, get that on a t-shirt. <laughs> Well, um, vaginismus, I like to say, is the experience of being unable to have penetrative sex. Um, if you look in a lot of textbooks, they'll define it as the spasming of the vaginal muscles uh, when a woman goes to have intercourse and cannot endure penetration. But that puts the emphasis on the vaginal spasm as if that is the only part of her body. So, you know, everything to do with diagnosis, everything to do with treatment is all centered around the spasming vaginal muscle, you know, and that brings a whole host of problems, which we'll get into as well. But just, you know, we're talking about what is vaginismus. There is a number of different types of vaginismus we can talk about as well. So there's primary and secondary types. Secondary types um, is, you know, where a woman has previously had penetrative sex, possibly very pleasurable sex, and then something has happened uh, like say a painful childbirth, a painful smear test, you know, something has happened and then, you know, there has been pain in that area and because there's been pain, the, the muscles tighten up to protect her and then she finds that she has this difficulty with penetration going forward. Um, but, you know, with one with secondary um, type of vaginismus, she does have the experience of having, you know, pleasurable sex before, you know, so sometimes the treatment is a little bit um, quicker, uh, a little bit easier with secondary types of vaginismus. And then the primary type is where women have never, ever been able to tolerate penetration. Um, they've never been able to have penetrative sex. It's very, very common as well that they wouldn't have been able to use tampons in their teenage years either. Um, if the woman goes for a smear test, that's usually impossible as well. So it's really any type of penetration sets up this kind of phobic response and the muscles tighten and, you know, the woman is not able to, you know, tolerate any of those kinds of things. So um, with primary vaginismus and secondary vaginismus, there's very different reasons for them. Which is, yeah, is understandable as well. So, so the outside, the, the vulva, are, you know, is usually, is there an issue with that as well? Like, can they handle their clitoris being touched or the labia being touched? Is that, you know? Um, well, that would depend on the woman, you yeah. know, but you do find um, with the primary type of vaginismus, quite often the woman would not, for example, have touched her own body. Mm. Um, so she, sometimes women feel quite squeamish about that or else it might have been something that they were told growing up is not a nice thing to do. You don't touch your body, you don't look at your body, you know, all of those kinds of messages around it being, you know, dirty and sinful and all of those kinds of things. So quite often, you know, women with primary type vaginismus will not have looked or explored their own body even uh, when they were growing up as well. Mm, which is just, uh, yeah, it's really sad. Like we don't even name it. And it, so it just becomes this unnameable, scary <laughs> part of your body. So you can kind of understand also, that. Yeah, this idea that your body is not for you. 
you yes, know yeah. rather you know it's, it's even it's like it's not part of you like that's not allowed that's for your husband mm. those kind of messages quite often will be in the background of that as well you know? yeah absolutely which is very heteronormative as well <laughs> um you know but um so the, the contributing factors the, the the obvious one i'm sure you came up with this in your research as well that people think it's a, a direct result of childhood sexual abuse and that it's like that protective measure that the body's trying to protect against but that's not always the case right Oh, I'm glad you said that, actually. I mean, um, I just published a paper um, and it's 50 years of research around vaginismus. And there is no evidence that there is a direct link between child sexual abuse and vaginismus. It might be the case in a minority of cases, but in, in the majority, it is not in the background for women with vaginismus. It would be very rare, you know, um, but it is an assumption that people make. And quite often GPs will tell women that. Uh, when they go for a consultation and a lot of women are afraid to go for a consultation with a GP or a therapist for fear that they will be told this as well and of course the, you know the awful thing is if a GP says to you oh you must have been sexually abused which some women had had that experience when I did my research oh my God. you know then you start thinking you know well am I repressing it did this happen to me yeah you know awful you know and then but start thinking actually, like is that my dad or something because yeah, like that's the predominantly sexual yeah. abuses in the home absolutely yeah wow. but I mean, there, there is no evidence for that and it's just a lack of you know good information a lack of education you know of of gps you know that that they would kind of say this to people and you know it certainly isn't something you know that is supported by research yeah it's just mad that a gp would just casually throw that out there as well of like well you must have been sexually abused like that's in that in your quick like five minute gp consultation oh, yeah. like that's wild how traumatizing and confusing that would be like and especially for something that somebody has like finally got the courage up to even go to a GP to even ask about it so I mean there's also you know there's either misinformation now obviously there is some very good GPs but the stories that I was told when I was doing my research was either that kind of misinformation being given um complete silence you know where there was no further information there was no referrals offered you know nothing at all and then the most frequent thing that GPs actually said to women uh, was go oh just go home and have a glass of wine really dismissive you know so it's just oh kind of get over yourself you know you're making a big deal out of nothing you know there was um you know women going for smear tests and you know when it was impossible to do they were told to come back when they were when they were grown up kind of you know that kind of dismissive attitude oh my you God. Know? so women can get very kind of harsh reactions um you know from gps well you know and i think it's you know just a lack of awareness and lack of education that, that you know the medical profession have about what vaginismus actually is you know um but it's very confusing for women you know and then they go home and if they're not offered any kind of referral they're they go home they're confused they don't know what to do they don't know where to go um but it's not as bad as when a woman is referred on to gynecological services because you know because the gp is coming from medical model usually they would say okay it's a problem with the, the vulva of the vagina let's you know refer a woman on to gynecological services so i had interviewed women as well that had been referred on and the method of choice seemed to be that the gynecologist would knock them out and then stretch them under anesthetic. Okay, sorry. Um, Hang on a second there. What? What? Yeah. How? And like not on a first appointment. No. Okay. Well, at least. I, well, I'm not sure about that. Well, yeah. certainly with the GP, the GP quite often would offer to examine the woman, and this is, you know. This is a real problem with the medical definition of vaginismus because they insist on diagnosing it with an internal examination. So, you know, the GP will insist on confirming 
uh, that it is vaginismus by examining the vagina. Now, you know, I don't. I don't think <laughs> yeah, it's like so. The yeah. woman is saying, like, I, I tense up, I seize up, nothing can get in, and they're like, yeah. I'm gonna test that and put yeah. something yeah. in you. Like that's yeah. pretty it's horrendous. Yeah, it's actually traumatizing for women, you know, and you know, frequently the vaginal uh, spasm is so strong that you know the gp can't actually do the examination anyway or the woman will back up against the wall yeah. or you know oh my uh, she'd be absolutely terrified so you know then the gp will refer her on to uh, gynecological services and then if she does get that stretching procedure you know typically the woman wakes up and is told there's nothing physically wrong with you go home and have sex oh my god so just, you know really horrifying and like this is like modern times as well this isn't like back in like unenlightened areas like you did your research you just graduated so like that's even more scary that like this is a current practice like that's yeah oh my god okay this is gonna be a very angry podcast um (laughs) yeah but i just think you know if a woman says she has vaginismus take her word for it you know she knows her experience you know she is feeling fearful you know during penetration she might have a fear of the pain you know um you know she, quite often a woman knows you know where those ideas have come from when I was doing interviews with women they could say oh you know when I was growing up there were certain messages that I heard or tv programs that I saw or you know um you know there was a parts of pornography maybe that I came across that really kind of horrified me frightened me you know those images stayed in my head you know there's all sorts of reasons yeah. why women would set up that phobic response but the phobic response is a really healthy thing if you think about it like your body gets the message that you know penetration is going to cause problems it's you know it's going to cause you damage in some way and so the body sets up this defense mechanism to protect you like your eye blinking if something was coming towards your eye yeah it you makes know? perfect so, sense yeah so then the woman feels unsafe so the key then is to make her feel safe. And when she feels safe, then she won't feel the need to, you know, have the spasm. And by the way, you know, this spasm is unconscious because if you think about it, you couldn't actually, you know, clench your stomach muscles indefinitely. You wouldn't be able to do that without pain. But, you know, this spasm is, you know, a prolonged spasm. And so it is like an unconscious defense mechanism protecting a woman from something. Yeah, and yeah. I talked to a psychotherapist and she said, you know, the woman has the spasm for a reason and that reason needs to be respected. And I thought that was just wonderful. Well, it's you know, just she, respectful. Yeah. 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 And you try and circumvent that with mechanical methods. You know, you can cause further trauma to a woman because yeah. another thing that, uh, you know, some that GPs might suggest is the woman order dilators off the Internet. Mm. Now, this is one know, of the yeah the solutions yeah. given. And yeah. uh, that's very common. Like you would see you would Absolutely. see that a lot. Yeah. yeah, but the problem with that is, you know, you get them, they arrive in the post, there might be no instructions with them. The woman might be trying to deal with it herself. She might try and force them in and cause herself physical damage and psychological damage as well. You know, so when, you know, studies work for some, some women, not for others, it's their choice. But if they choose to use them, you know, it's better if they're part of a psychotherapeutic program where you have a supportive therapist that can coach you through and talk to you about you know each stage as it progresses and you know do the psychological work with you as well and not just the physical mechanical stuff and um, because it isn't about the mechanics there's nothing physically wrong with the woman's body it is doing the healthy thing it's protecting her that's what it's doing yeah yeah I, I want to go back to what you just said there about the, the porn part of things I mean yeah. you know again growing up in Ireland we didn't, we didn't have porn <laughs> porn was out oh, thing, yeah. um, allegedly but like you know nowadays like with with things like you know porn is very accessible and a lot of porn like we're not anti-porn on this podcast but a lot of it is 
not great <laughs> you know I think that's that's very fair to say yeah. yeah and like a lot of it can be very like pounding like it's yeah. just like going on and you can see on the screen like that you know the labia is like red and swollen and like you know there's a lot of action going on and then you have like things like anal gaping and all this obviously slightly different body part but very very you know in that area and um I can kind of imagine like if you saw that at a young age and you didn't have porn literacy skills and you didn't understand what was going on you can see why that would actually be really scary because it's so aggressive and so over the top and like you know porn performers are professionals and that's their job and you know what we see on screen isn't always the exact you know yeah, yeah representation yeah. of what's going on but and there are injuries in porn too but like if you're oh, like a small you know podcast you did with Grace O'Shea yes um, yeah I, I've just been listening to that and she was saying that one of the questions the teenagers asked was mm. when I'm having sex am I allowed to smile because they've never seen women smiling and her, that yeah. really struck me when she said That's that so sad. you know it's yeah. not it's not really something that is marketed for women it's marketed for men mm. so you know the images are not supposed to be you know women-centered you know that, yeah. that's more well. smiley happy porn being put oh, out into yeah. the universe please that would be well, I mean, an need, awesome you know, thing the messages that you know um you know sex is always about men being in control you know and it's for men's pleasure and mm. you know women are just there for men's pleasure but you know that's not a but that's scary as well for a lot of people that oh I have to go into this situation I have to be naked which is terrifying for a lot of people okay. like you're very vulnerable and then if if your only sex ed is being porn you're like okay now this man has to do things to me and it seems quite intense and hardcore and like you know yeah. it, it, it's kind of quite violent in some ways like I could see why you would form those beliefs as a result of that like did you find like many people cited porn as maybe a contributing factor to there was, there was a couple but yeah. overwhelmingly it was the messages that came from the family um okay. really it was the key thing for for most people you know um so I you know interviewed couples together for my study and it was the first study that actually ever did that and used the data from both partners mm. um, and I also interviewed a range of professionals that work with women and couples with vaginismus as well and that included uh, GPs and consultants, psychotherapists, physiotherapists, you know, a, a wide range of, of professionals as well. Um, and so I suppose, you know, from the research, I've started to think about contributing factors as having uh, different layers. So if you start at the top layer, OK, I'll think about the macro layer, which is culture. OK, so I already said before that, you know, in Orthodox religious cultures, you do see much higher levels of vaginismus worldwide. And it doesn't matter what religion you're talking about. It's all of them, all of the major world religions, because if you think about it, none of them are saying things that are particularly positive about women's sexuality. Uh, mostly women's sexuality is forbidden. Female pleasure, you know, is considered to be taboo. You know, you're just there to kind of conceive children, you know, all of that. Um, so you get very high rates coming out of, as I said, Iran and Turkey, which would be Orthodox uh, Muslim countries. Um, you get very high rates in Orthodox uh, Jewish countries as well, like um, in Israel. Tel Aviv is a huge centre for treating women with uh, bad business. Really? Wow. Because yeah. I thought in Judaism, now I'm, I'm literally not an expert in religion yeah. at all, like, you know, but like I thought Judaism was like, sex is okay once it has to be married but like once then it's like there is an obligation to have like lovely happy sex and the husband has to do his best to please the woman and stuff like because they're yeah. quite progressive about abortion as well and, and things like that but um yeah well interestingly but, i was talking to a physiotherapist about this as well and she said um when a man is circumcised um it's the tip of the the penis that actually causes you know gives additional lubrication 
So if a man's uncircumcised, sometimes it can lead to rougher feelings mm. for the woman during sex. So she said that might be why, you know, in, in some religions that um, encourage okay. uh, circumcision, that yeah. might be a factor. Uh, but uh, it's also obviously, you know, the, the Christian religions as well. When, when they are Orthodox, there have been a number of uh, books written about this. There's one by Melanie Klein called Pure, and she wrote about the evangelical Christian movement in America and interviewed um, a number of women who had, you know, a range of sexual dysfunctions, including vaginismus as a result of their upbringing as well. You know, so, and then, you know, Catholicism has kind of been singled out as being extremely restrictive uh, with regard to, you know, no sex before marriage and, you know, the kind of, yeah. um, you know, sex is a sin kind of messages, you know, that come from Catholicism as well. And in Ireland, we had kind of a, an ultra orthodox, very conservative version of Catholicism, which didn't really exist anywhere else. Like we were really unique in Europe in that respect. And that's what the studies in 1979, 1986 talked about, you know, that really the way we interpreted our Catholicism was really, really strict. Yeah, we went, we went for the more depressing we sides <laughs> of, of things. Yeah, it was, oh God, being a woman in those yeah. times. I mean, like, yeah, we had Magdalene laundries for people being locked yeah. up if they, exactly. you know, Absolutely. engage yeah, in yeah. sex. And, and being a, they were in other countries yeah. as well, they, they kind of persisted longer in Ireland than anywhere mm. else you know so we have that layer so that's the layer of the the culture okay and then you kind of say okay well obviously you know you do have higher rates in orthodox countries but not every single woman in those cultures will have vaginismus so who are, are the women you know developing vaginismus within this context and um, so the next layer down then is to look at the family so the family is you know the vehicle through which you know, cultural values are transmitted. So, you know, when you have families that really kind of toe the line in terms of the orthodoxy and, you know, having these messages about, you know, female sexuality being sinful and no sex before marriage and no female masturbation, as you know, all of those kinds of things, everything is sin, 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 everything's making you feel bad, you know, um, and then all of a sudden you get married and you're expected to have children. So there was a, a study, a really interesting study done in Hong Kong, um, I think around 2010, and Ning uh, was the woman, she interviewed a number of women with vaginismus in Hong Kong. And again, you know, they would have um, a different religion, again, the kind of Taoist religion, Buddhist religion it would, would have been, um, you know, prevalent in that culture. But she said it was uh, the women, the women's mothers had more of a significant impact on them than the, the religious ethos, you know, that, that okay. pervaded. Yeah. And the mother was very anti-sex, uh, um, that the women found it very, very difficult to... Um, they would not have engaged in any kind of sexual contact prior to the wedding night. And then all of a sudden they said on the wedding night, there was immense pressure from their families to have children and to conceive. So you went from being a non-sexual being to somebody who was supposed to have sex and have children in 24 hour period. Oh, yeah, and no pressure. It was just too much. And yeah. that's why they ended up going to psychosexual clinics for help. Wow. You know, Well, even um, like the old school things about like virginity, like the pressure and oh. that, that as a concept, mm -hmm. but even the whole like I grew up thinking, OK, like when when it's time to have sex, it's going to hurt and uh, there's going to be blood on the sheets. Like that was like the two things that I accepted. That was like an actual oh. fact. And like I didn't bleed the first time. And I was like, is there something wrong with me? Because like yeah, it was so happily. Yeah, I was like, it was so hammered into my head that like, you know, you, you have the blood and like, you, you remember those things about like families will like hold up the bloody sheets outside, um, you know, a door or display it to, yeah. to prove that the couple had had sex. So, you know, when yeah. that didn't happen. Well, not, not only they had sex, but the woman was a virgin, which was yes. really important. Yeah, yeah. And so in people were like, they'd cut their finger or something to be like, you know, if they didn't have blood, they'd cut their finger and be like, look, look, that's vaginal blood. Like, you know, it's because it was such an, a bad thing. Like, you know, she, the woman would be shunned if 
that wasn't there it's like the pressure of that oh my yeah. gosh like oh it is it's you know I think in any country where you know you have the prizing female virginity you do find you know that you have these um kind of heteronormative kind of you know yeah. patriarchal ideas on what's appropriate for a woman's sexuality mm-hmm. um, and then, you know, it's important to say as well that it's very, very rare in studies to find sisters in the same household having vaginismus. That's very rare. So even within the same household, there's women growing up within that household, but not they won't all have vaginismus. So what is it about the particular woman then that develops vaginismus? And it seems to be, you know, from my research and others, you know, that there are women who are more sensitive to the family messages that maybe you know, crave the approval of their family a little bit more, um, are more afraid of what will happen, you know, if they transgress uh, the family messages, you know, and they take on board the messages, they hear it in a particular way. So for example, you know, this idea that um, the reputation of the family rests on the shoulders of the daughter. So it's like, if you come home and you're pregnant outside of marriage, you're going to shame the family and you're going to ruin your life. And don't bother coming home and don't shame the family. And those kind of messages that are so harsh, yeah. this kind of dichotomy is set up in the woman's mind where it's like, okay, I can have a sexual relationship with my partner or I can have my family's love, but I can't do both. And that seemed to be one of the key things um, in the backgrounds of, of women with vaginismus that I spoke to, you know. Yeah, that's uh, where they really definitely Irish that, culture. You know, their family would reject them, you yeah. know, if, if they had a, a, a sexual um, relationship. There- is there something in that, you know, because um, I, I look a lot at like, you know, the work of uh, the whole world of like abusive households and stuff. And like sometimes there is like the golden child and the black sheep of the family, um, you know, and one one child is treated differently than the other. Like, do you think was there any kind of mention of that in the family of, you know, the, the different treatment that maybe different siblings got or maybe that didn't come into it? Well, I think, you know, parents will parent every child slightly differently, you know, even if they don't intend to, you know, um, I thought maybe, you know, we might have something to do being firstborn, you know, that you would be kind of held up as the role model and, you know, you're supposed to be the model for your sisters and brothers and that kind of thing. I didn't find that there were younger, you know, younger women, women who came middle in the family, you know, the eldest child, you know, so there didn't seem to be any correlation um, with that either, you know, Um, but it seemed that, you know, I remember talking to one woman and you know she her sister did not advise this and, and you know she told me about very harsh messages coming from her mother and I said you know why do you think that you developed vaginismus and your sister didn't and she said well she didn't listen to my mom whereas I listened oh, to her okay okay was, okay that was yeah, yeah yeah but it's interesting I didn't start off thinking about the mother-daughter relationship when I started doing the interviews but nearly every woman brought it up in the course of the interviews you know so these really kind of harsh messages and, and to be socialized to you know curb your um your sexual feelings and you know not really put yourself first and you know and um, putting everybody else's needs before your own and putting you know the reputation of the family first and your family's needs and your you know your family's kind of um needs and wants and you know their and needing their approval you know all of that was kind of tied up with um you know the the trauma around having the vaginismic response in their own relationships as well okay 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 and like just just to clarify so you you spoke to women and couples were they all hetero couples they were now i didn't exclude um same-sex couples from my research and i just didn't have people that applied Okay. Um, but it would be brilliant like we do need to know about yeah that. absolutely it would be great and also um trans women 
Yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's quite often dilator therapy can be part of that as well. And that can be vaginismus can be an issue there as well. So, you know, there are avenues of research that have not been done, which I think would be really, really valuable too. Absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure that's that's, you know, a huge issue for some people. So, um, yeah. so like going for it. So you mentioned dilators. there are one form yeah. of treatment. So what else then if the dilators aren't right for the person or maybe they are and they need something yeah. extra as well? Like like what options do people have? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's really, really important to see the right person, you know, because it's you need to feel safe and you need to make a connection with the professional that you're talking to. You know, so some women, for example, had wonderful experiences with physiotherapists who will give the woman half an hour of their time rather than the five minute GP appointment. You know, so I met, you know, I interviewed brilliant physiotherapists for my study and, you know, um, they can not only give the woman time, but they also will refer on usually they have a you know a, a team of people that they can for, refer on to so if they feel the woman needs psychotherapy they can refer on as well um but sometimes women will go straight to psychotherapy because they will be aware that it is the messages and you know all of those things that are causing uh, problems and um, so on my website i have a support services um section and on it i have listed all of the you know properly trained um psychotherapists in ireland that are available for women um, and it's really vitally important to go to somebody who is trained in both psychosexual therapy and couples therapy um, if you go to kind of a general therapist they wouldn't really have the skills to help you know so it's really important to find somebody who's actually uh, properly trained um, there is an organization called the college of uh, sexual and relationship therapists um, and a number of therapists, Irish therapists, you know, went to the UK and were trained by them and came back and, you know, they, they will have that qualification list on their, their website as well. And they are very good. Um, and one thing that's really amazing is that, you know, everybody south of the border seems to be in private practice, the vast majority seem to be. And that's a real difficulty because as part of my study as well, I went to Northern Ireland and they had these fantastic free psychosexual clinics with multidisciplinary teams and you know they the people could go to you know these uh, these teams for as long as they needed to um, and they had unlimited access to uh, professionals in the area and um, that would stay with them and coach them through and it was a fantastic it's like model. some kind of like utopia that like yeah. we just do not we're miles away from that down in the south yeah. And they also work closely with Relate Northern Ireland as well. I have their details on my website as well. And Relate also do um, uh, couples and psychosexual yeah. therapy. Um, so they were also, um, they could refer on to, to Relate as well. So there's fantastic services in Northern Ireland, both, you know, public and private. Um, but down here, it is, it is very expensive to see somebody. We don't, first of all, we don't have enough psychosexual therapists that are properly trained. And, um, you know, second of all, a lot of people, because they don't get a referral from their GP, and usually it's the GP they will go to first, they end up being on the internet trying to find somebody themselves. And, you know, how would you know as a lay person who is properly qualified yeah, yeah. and who isn't? You know, that it's really different. And that's one of the main reasons I set up my website, because I wanted to say to people, look, here is a list of good, trained people and you can trust them and you can go to them, you know. And um, so apart from, as I said, the dilator therapy, you're asking about the kinds of therapy, a lot of them will do a kind of sensate focus program, which is about gradually increasing intimacy between the woman and her partner, or else the woman, if she's single, she can do the therapy herself as well. And um, there's no barrier to that. Mm -hmm. um, but I would like to say, just while I'm mentioning couples as well, um, one of the myths about vaginismus is that it's a relationship problem. So some women you know, have been suggested by people who weren't properly qualified that it was a problem in their relationship. Right, and okay. typically that is not the case. Yeah. You know, relationships actually, um, 
tend to be quite sound like women um will stay with their partners for a very long time the partners tend to be very supportive very loving the couples are often very sexual in other ways so you know for some people it does become very sexually frustrating and can lead to a lack of intimacy for other people they'll say okay we can't do this one thing but look at everything else that we can do you know so they have very very happy you know sex lives and they can be very very happy with their intimacy and sometimes it is you know for example you know the need to conceive where they say okay we need to do something about this you know that they might go forward for help but they okay. may not be necessarily sexually frustrated or having relationship problems they may be dealing with it very well by themselves the couples i met were extremely resourceful you know and really really happy and content and very loving towards one another but still it was something that was causing them unhappiness you know that they couldn't um share their intimacy in yeah, this way and yeah. um, well, so that's like a sign as well of like you know when you take off that pressure that penetration is the be all and end all of sex yeah. like that's what we are told in in sex education it's like when a man puts his penis into a woman's vagina and that the just so much like we can pick apart in that statement but yeah if it's like if you're told that is the only way you can have sex you can understand why people might feel like a failure or oh, yeah. all these horrible things and it's like like your couples they found actually when you take it off the table there's so yeah. much more to sexual pleasure out yeah. there than literally penis in vagina yeah and that's one of the keys to the successful therapy as well you know I was speaking to one psychotherapist and he said when we start the sensing focus program, which gradually increases intimacy, um, we take sex off the table, we we do a sex ban. And he says, you know, the couples always laugh at that because they say we're not having sex anyway. He says, yes, but the pressure to have sex is always there. You know, so let's take that pressure off. Let's say there is no possibility that you're going to have sex at all. We're going to take that off the table. We're going to do gradual, you know, um, intimate touching, you know, that gets progressively more intimate. Um, and as I said, you know, um, it's not necessarily partners together. It can be the woman maybe um, intimately touching herself. Now, for some women, vaginismus, that is very uncomfortable and they may not want to do that. And that's fine as well, you know. Um, so again, it's, you know, the, the therapy has to be tailored towards what the woman and the couple are comfortable with. There can't be just this prescribed, you know, manual of, you know, this is the way we're yeah, going to do it. Yeah, one size fits all. Yeah, and, and it may be that, you know, the woman or the couple decide that they don't want to have penetrative sex and that is fine, you know. Now, one of the major problems with a lot of the studies that have been done um, with regard to treatments of vaginismus is that you know they will do things like dilator therapies or you know they will you know progress towards penetration without you know really kind of consulting you know whether, whether this is you know appropriate or not um, and then the woman might be able physically to tolerate penetration it doesn't mean she's having any pleasure it doesn't mean you know, she might be putting up with it you know she might be just kind of tolerating penetration in order to conceive you know that is not what you want you don't want somebody tolerating and putting up no. with penetration that is going to cause more trauma as well for the woman you absolutely know? And, and for the partner i mean this yeah. isn't for the partner either you yeah. know so you want a situation where they're both you know enjoying their intimacy that they've decided what they want to do what causes them sexual pleasure and sexual wellness and they are happy with the outcome so you know if, you know some studies will say well this therapy is 100 percent success rate and what they mean by that is we achieve penetration um, but that isn't that should never be the outcome measure. The outcome measure is that the couple are satisfied with the outcome and that might include penetration and it might not. And that's fine. That is such an excellent point. Like, yeah. again, because again, that, that fear of failure sometimes as well is like if you go through something like this and you still can't 
um, you know, you know, get on board with penetration, you might feel like, oh, well, it doesn't work or like, you know, there's something broken about me. And that's not the case. But people might feel like that if, if there is that pressure to be like, are you a success rate in this 100 percent, which literally means everyone else apart from you is able to do that. Like that's such enormous pressure on somebody. But yeah, it's not about the physical part I mean we've all had kind of sex where it's just like oh god that wasn't even worth its time you know so it's all about like you know the enjoyment aspect but I think some people look at it and it's like it's a literally a box ticking exercise no pun intended um and that one but yeah it's that's really sad to just have it be okay you're done you can have something inside you you're cured like that's exactly, that's yeah. not okay and here is that the woman will dissociate from it Yes, you know, and again, yeah. kind of putting up with it. So, you know, a lot of um, therapies will incorporate mindfulness as well, where, you know, when, when there is kind of feelings of anxiety, you know, around the intimate situation that you kind of stay with it and that you breathe and you communicate with your partner, tell them how you're feeling, you know, so you have that two-way communication all of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, as I said at the start, it's about making the woman feel safe. Yes. And when she yeah. feels safe in the sexual encounter, the spasm lessens naturally. But the more you go at it and try and, you know, force the you know try and force down you know, the barrier that she needs you know um it has very little chance of working and if it does work it's more likely to traumatize the woman you know so the key thing is to make her feel safe for her to understand why she needed the spasm in the first place and then to try and make her feel safe in the sexual encounter yeah like that safety isn't something that has to be sacrificed in order to be you know quote-unquote cured like it's yeah. you know yeah, I think like this is why, you know, we really do need like that trauma informed approach and trauma informed. Obviously, in this case, there might not be, you know, you know that physical trauma or something, but it, it's something that, you know, if we push it, there will be trauma as well. So it's like ongoing and future and past and all those kind of different forms of trauma. And we have to be careful how we interact with people. Like if you're in that position as a gynecologist, like you have that position of power. And if you're just going to say shove this up you and your grant. Like yeah. that's just so horrible and dismissive and it does yeah. not address the problem whatsoever. Like that's, you know, there are kind of, you know, I, I heard about women being offered numbing agents for their vagina um, or else oh, no. um, the new thing is Botox for, um, you know, lessening the spasm of the muscles, you know, and, and that can work. But again, it's, it's temporary. Like what happens when the Botox wears off, you know, then, then the spasm is there again. And again, you know, this idea you know when you look at the you know the traditional symbols of um male and female and you have the arrow for the male because he moves during sex and the cross for the female because she doesn't move and that's ridiculous you know of course women move during sex and they move their muscles and you know that causes pleasurable feelings and you know for to artificially you know circumvent that so that the muscles are all numbed and then this kind of feeling that something's being done to you and you can't control the depth of penetration and things like that, that actually causes an awful lot of fear and anxiety as well. Because imagine. women need to be able to yeah. fear, they need to be able to feel that they are in control of the situation, yeah. you know. So, you know, I'm, I'm very sceptical about those kinds of um, approaches. Yeah, well, it seems like you know. a double-edged sword of like, it might help someone, but it, it's like, it, I think it all comes down to the mental approach of like, if that's what you feel like you need and that's like what you help need to get over that initial hurdle and then you don't need it anymore whatever if that works but it's not a result of like we'll know me you can be penetrated job done case closed like that's where it's kind of getting a bit problematic and like yeah consent coming into that as well it's like mm, like again sex should be pleasurable and enjoyable and not something we have to tolerate you know I think that's something you have to do yeah 
yeah absolutely yeah you don't need to have any kind of sex like you know it's just like if and when you do choose it it should be on your terms and you know and the way you want it to be but oh it's just like there's so much frustration around that and I can imagine that for someone who has experienced this it's just a million times more like this is me as an outsider being frustrated um but again yeah I think it feels like we have a long way to go when it comes to true quality but your study is going to be great for that and and you know bringing that out there is um so you have your twitter feed as well which remind me of the name it's at irish vaginismus perfect and yeah. people can go along and you know and you've got your website as well which has loads yeah. of different resources and, and as well. it's on the website as well if anybody you know wants to contact me i can Fantastic. i'm not a practitioner myself but i can point them in the right direction if they need support services and things like that brilliant you know yeah, yeah. Brilliant. And so is, is your website? The main reason, the reason I set up the website, which is um, vaginismusresearchireland.com, um, is because I wanted women to know that they're not alone. I want yeah. them to know how common it is. I want them to know that it is treatable, but it's really important to find the right professional that will support you and you can feel a connection with. And that's the key thing to resolving it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that and that lovely compassionate approach is the, the, the key that like it helps people go on and find what works for them so that's fantastic so Maria it's been a doctor Maria should I say now it's been absolutely fantastic um talking to you and thank you for that and I just think it just opens the door for a lot of people to get to where they want to be which is absolutely fantastic and however they define where that place is that's up to them so it's great so um yeah thank you for doing all that work and um and can people read your PhD online as well and your results yeah, yeah. yeah. on my website I have my all of my publications Annie uh, the PhD is there and the interviews that I've done um, I did an, an excellent interview with Sean Moncrief uh, on News Talk he was fantastic and um, that is available on the, the website so anything I'm doing I will put it up on the website for people to, to access and um, so they have all the, the information and, and as I said there's a frequently asked questions section as well um, so people can kind of get the basics of you know the contributing factors treatments all of that. Fantastic fantastic that's what we like we like academics that make their work accessible to people and not behind paywalls and everything else so um that's fantastic so maria thank you so so much and i'd urge everyone to go and check out your work because again you know it might be something that might not affect us but we you never know you might have a friend who is suffering or a family member or something like that so the more we can educate ourselves the more you know a lovely empathetic community and world that we might live in down the line as well so um thanks everybody for listening and please feel free to drop a line it's glow west podcast on twitter and instagram and um yeah we will chat to you next time